Welcome to Reading Through the New Testament. We have made it to week number 52. Week number 52, we have arrived uh, to where now we, uh, I mean, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? We've done this for a full year, and I think you and I deserve a little round of applause. Yes, we've made it. Um, you know, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be crazy when we're done with this and then we're going to be launching into the new Testament really quick or the old Testament really quick. Um, and, uh, reading the Bible there to learn more. And I think what you're going to see is as we go through the old Testament, hopefully you've read the new Testament now. And as we go through the old Testament, hopefully we'll see, oh yeah, I remember reading that in the new Testament, but Oh, this is where this comes from. Remember, we've we've talked about how, um, uh, you know, Genesis three fifteen. We talked about that with the seed of the woman and the dragon and all that stuff, right? All that stuff is there in the Old Testament. It's just been further uh, elaborated, further explained and defined in the New Testament. So it's going to be pretty exciting stuff. Um, let's. Uh, we're gonna. So this week we're in Revelation uh, eighteen through twenty two. This comes out on Christmas Day, and uh, maybe this is an appropriate one to do for uh, Christmas Day, uh, and uh, as we meditate upon remembering the first coming of Christ and look forward to his, his last coming uh, for us as well. So in Revelation chapter 18, we have uh, the fall of Babylon, powerful words, right? Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons. Um, this this declaration of the fall of Babylon, I believe, is rooted in uh, the book of Isaiah, uh, which is, uh, let me see here, Isaiah, I'm looking here at my, um, my uh, footnotes here, um, Isaiah 13, 21 maybe, or uh, 34, no, that's a different place, different place, sorry. Uh, but yeah, obviously, th- these words are coming from, from the Old Testament and being brought into the new. Uh, God is calling his people to come out of her, uh, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. And then eventually we have um, rejoicing in heaven in Revelation 19. We've got the marriage supper of the lamb. And then we have the rider on the white horse. And he says this in Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold. And it's almost like behold is almost like a drawing our, our minds. It's like, then I saw heaven opened and, and right then and there, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. I love the fact that, by the way, he doesn't come out and just tell us it's Jesus. And uh, one of the things that happens is, is I, I don't know how to describe this, but um, you kind of see this in, in, um, Maybe in boxing matches, uh, you know, like you'll see like um, sometimes they've got nicknames, right? Uh, I don't know some of the boxing, boxing nicknames. That makes me think of like uh, of James Braddock in the movie Cinderella Man. When he comes out, um, he's the bulldog of something, you know, and they start giving nicknames and titles to who he is without giving his personal name. Eventually, James Braddock. And that's kind of what it is. This is who he is. He's faithful and true. And in the heart of believers starts to leap a little bit, doesn't it? Inside of you, you're like, I know who that is. It's kind of like um, if uh, 
I mean, it, I, I mean, I, I use sports analogies, or you can use um, uh, political analogies, uh, world analogies, uh, any number of things. Uh, I, I, I don't, uh, you know, I think about sports, I think about Tom Brady, he's won, what, seven Super Bowls, and someone came in and said, this is a, and, and here we're presenting a seven-time Super Bowl winning uh, quarterback, you know, and like everybody in our minds, if you know sports, you, you're, you're in your mind, you're like, there can only be one person who's done that. Uh, similarly here, our hearts as believers start to kind of go a little faster when it says, the one sitting on it, he's called faithful, and he's called true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Now, where have I seen somebody with eyes like flame of fire? Well, the very beginning of the book, right? Jesus shows up. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Remember Revelation chapter 12, there was a woman who was giving birth to a child who would rule the nations. Uh, He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so he comes, and, and this is the final image that we're given. And really what John has given us is, again, remember those different perspectives. We talked about that previously in a previous episode, how John is giving us different camera angles to the same event, the same period between Christ's first and second coming. And he's looking at it from all of these different angles and these different strands. And here we have Christ coming with his people to bring about uh, the final victory uh, over over sin, death, hell, and the devil and the beasts here. So, look here, Revelation chapter nineteen, verse twelve. This is Horatius Bonar. Um, I think all these things today are from him. And this is called Messiah's many crowns. It says on his head were many crowns, and this is what he writes: God's great eternal purpose was to rule this world by a man, not directly by himself, but immediately by a man, such as he whose creation is recorded in Genesis, not by an angel or mere spiritual creature, but by being by, by a being of flesh and blood. Earth's government was to be in and by humanity. To the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, Hebrews 2.5. The first intimation of this is in Genesis, in the history of man's creation. God blessed him and said, have dominion. This is a man's investiture with regal power. This is Earth's Magna Carta. This is God's constitution for our world. A monarchy, not a republic, nor an oligarchy. The crown is put upon man's head and the scepter into his hand by God himself. Man sinned away his dominion. The crown fell from his head, the scepter from his hand. Yet still, ages after, God speaks of dominion as his and and etches us I don't know what that word is supposed to be. And etches us? Uh, Anyway, you get the point. To ask the question, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Nay, puts into our lips a new acknowledgement of the original title, thou hast put all things under his feet. Psalm 8, 6. Therefore it is that the redeemed sing, we shall reign on the earth. Revelation 5, 10. But the scepter was not to pass from the hands of humanity. God's purpose must stand. In its first unfolding, it seemed to break down, but it cannot fail. One in our very own, 
one in our very flesh, a true son of Adam, has the crown secured to him. Messiah, the word made flesh, is earth's king, the last Adam, the Lord from heaven. Man and man's earth are not to be disjoined. But before Messiah reigns, there are to be ages of misrule and evil, rebellion and treason against the righteous king. For now we see not yet all things put under him. God puts man on trial to see if he can rule the earth, to see if he will rule it according to the holy principles of its original constitution. In every region of earth this has been tried, and man's total incapacity for righteous judge, for righteous government has been proved, as well as earth's persistent refusal to submit to righteous rule. Earth is at this day no nearer order and peace and holiness than at first. Yet God has enunciated the true principles of government to man. He did it briefly at first. He did it more fully afterwards, when he chose a land for the special scene of his dominion and a people in whom the divine principles of government might be exhibited. He has done it most fully of all in his revelations of the future man, of the future of man and man's earth. All prophecy more or less directly points to this. Israel's predictions of latter-day glory contain in them not only the germs of such principles of government, but their full and frequent exposition. God has told us how he wishes his world to be ruled. He that ruleth over men must be just. Judges and rulers should be fearers of God, seeking to do his will and glorify his name. The crown and scepter are to represent holiness and righteousness as well as power. The throne is to be established in judgment and justice. The legislation is to be righteous or religious, interwoven in all its acts with God and his laws. The king rules for God and in the name of God. All that he says and does are to remind his subjects of him by whom kings reign. Thus, all God's history of the past and his revelation of the future declare the principles on which he desires his earth to be governed, the true theory of earthly rule and legislation. He who dissevers God from government or would exercise dominion without religion is setting aside what God has taken such pains to affirm. Divine politics are heavenly in their nature, and it is by these politics that our world is to be swayed. All that is good and holy and just is concentrated in the person of Messiah. He is the just one. His scepter is a scepter of righteousness. The center of his dominion is the new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Messiah, then, is the representative of Adam, yet also of God. To Messiah, when all else have failed, is committed the government of earth. He, the true Adam, with his true Eve, the church, is set by God on the throne. When the four great monarchies that have tyrannized over earth and trodden down the saints shall have been broken in pieces and made like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. God casts down to the thrones of earth, sets up the true throne, and places his son upon it, King of kings and Lord of lords. On his head are many crowns. First of all, the crown of heaven is on his hand. head. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor at the Father's right hand. Heaven is his dominion. He sits upon its throne. But secondly, the crown of earth is on his head. Not yet, not yet, but soon. All the present crowns of earth shall pass away. He shall take to himself his great power and reign. He shall yet wear the crown and exercise dominion. Here, when all things are made new, come forth, O ye daughters of Zion, and behold King Solomon with the crown wherewith his mother crowned him. Thirdly, the crown of principalities and powers is on his head. He is the head of these. I do not mean merely that the powers of hell are put under his feet, but the powers of heaven. He is the king of angels. Fourthly, the crown of the church is on his head. He is king of saints. 
He is at once the husband and the king of the church. He is thy Lord. Worship thou him. The saints sit with him on his throne, yet they fall down before him. Thus Christ is all and in all. Earth was made for him as well as heaven. Men were made for him as well as angels. Might and dominion are his here below, and he shall yet take the scepter and show what holy government is, what holy legislation is, what holy judgment is, what holy politics are, what a holy king is. Earth waits for his arrival. Men rebel against his government. They would cast out the air. They would not have him to rule over them. Yet God shall set up his son on set his son upon his holy hill of Zion. So Christ is coming to rule and to reign as our king over this earth. Then we turn, we, so we go from the, the last battle there in Revelation 19. Um, then again, we're, we're brought here in Revelation chapter 20 to a much contested passage. Let's be honest, there's different interpretations here, and there's a lot that we could talk about, and a lot that I would encourage you, if you're interested, um, uh, to dive into studying Revelation chapter 20, because it is the, the whole issue of the millennium, the thousand years, what is all going on here, this first resurrection, second resurrection. All of those issues um, have been debated in church history, and Christians have, have tried to figure out exactly what's going on there um, and where all of that falls. But eventually we all agree that good and evil will remain till Christ returns. Uh, the world is sin will not be eradicated. Um, we do also believe the church will never be completely extinguished. Uh, God's people, God will always have a people. And also we agree that the resurrection of the good and the bad will take place at some point in the future, even if we might disagree on some of the, the timeline of when and where those details happen. And also we all agree that there is an eternal state of heaven, for all of those who are covered in the blood of the Lamb, and hell for those who have rejected the offer of the everlasting gospel. And so uh, heaven and hell are real, eternal states. And now let's turn our attention now to uh, heaven and its um, uh, and what it describes about it, because we have the, the description uh, briefly, really, in a sense of, of, of uh, the final judgment there, uh, where death and Hades are give up the dead that are in them. They're thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And that is that is hell, the final place of, of, of judgment, a sobering uh, description of it, meant to remind us of the seriousness of sin and also to take God serious whenever he says that his wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. Um, and also to drive us then, uh, it's, it's appropriately meant to make us afraid of God. Therefore, we turn to him and receive the free gift of Christ that comes from his hand. And then eventually we turn our attention in 21, chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, right away, by the way, this should make us in our minds, we're going to read through the Old Testament. We're not going to read this, this book this time, this next year, but Isaiah 65, ding, 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 talks about new heavens and new earth. So, all, all, whatever whatever Isaiah 65 is talking about, that's what Revelation 21 is talking about, using the same imagery, a new heavens and a new earth. So again, notice the language of the Old Testament. John is, John is saying everything that was promised in the Old Testament is now coming to pass in Christ. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. This is the vision of the restitution of all things. This is Horatius Bonar again. He says this, of these last two glorious, of these two last glorious chapters, we might not say, might we not say, thou hast kept the good wine until now? They take us into the shrine of shrines, into the very heart of the glory, into the paradise of God, into the royal banqueting house, into the very splendor of eternity. What a summing up of God's purposes is here. What a conclusion of the divine oracles. What a termination to the long, long desert journey of the church of God, calling forth from us the exulting shout which broke from the lips of the crusaders when first from the neighboring height they caught sight of the holy city. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The first book of scripture and the last fit well into each other. The first two chapters of Genesis and the last two of Revelation fit together like the two halves of a golden clasp set in gems. Enclosed between the two is the history of 6,000 years. And what a history, what a beginning, and what an ending. It began with the new, and it ended with the new, the strange, checkered, old lying mysteriously between. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I saw new heavens and a new earth. Of these revelation visions, some were seen by John on earth and some in heaven, according as the point of view suited best the vision and the seer. His sight of Jesus and his priestly glory was from earth, Patmos itself, Jesus had come down to him and showed himself face to face. The epistles to the seven churches are written from Patmos also. But after this, John is called up to heaven, like Paul, to see and hear unspeakable things, which, however, unlike those which Paul saw, would be lawful for a man to utter. And most of the subsequent visions are from this heavenly standing place. What eyes must have what eyes must his have been to look upon such terrors and such glories unmoved and undazzled? Let us notice a few of the many things regarding which he says while standing in these heavenly places. I saw. We cannot cite even one half. I saw four and twenty elders sitting. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain. I saw and lo a great multitude which no man could number stood before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. That's from chapter 7, verse 9 there. I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, 10-1. I saw, as it were, a glass of a sea of glass mingled with fire, 15-2. I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, 17-3. I saw the woman drunken with the blood of saints, 17-6. I saw an angel standing in the sun, 19-17. I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, 20, verse 4. I saw a great white throne in him that sat on it, 22. Or maybe that's probably 2012, probably. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 21.1. I, I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven out of God, 21.2. This new heaven and earth which John saw were no doubt still future. He saw the future as if it were the present. Yet this new creation shall not be shadowy, but real, as real as that described in Genesis. The former creation passes away and the new creation comes. New heavens, new earth, new sea. 
The old creation is not annihilated, but only purges and renewed. It passes away as the gold passes into the furnace to come out purified. It passes away as this vile body does into the grave to come forth glorious and immortal, yet the same body. The restitution of all things is to do for earth and heaven what resurrection is to do for the body. What a change, what a perfection, what a holy blessedness. Oh, when shall the day break and the shadows flee away? The first verse most significantly brings before us such things as these, all of them blessed. First of all, here is the end of sin. <clears throat> the world has lain in wickedness, but it shall do so no more. The overflowing flood of evil shall then, then, shall then be dried up, and sin be known no more upon this earth and under these heavens. What an ending shall be the ending of sin. For six thousand years it has triumphed. Then its triumph ends. Not the shadow of sin or evil in any form shall pass over this fair globe. It shall, even more than at the first, be very good. Secondly, see the end of the serpent and his seed. How many ages had run out from the time that the serpent seduced Eve and ruined our world? From the hour when God said, Thou art cursed above all cattle, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. The seducer's triumph is now over. Hebe himself is cast out of this earth and bound. The terrible battle of so many ages has been fought, and the battlefield cleared forever. Earth is now no longer at Satan's mercy, and a trace of his long dominion over it remains. The creation that he marred rises from its ruin and sorrow more glorious than at first. His reign is ended, his legions are in chains, his spell is dissolved, his work of disfigurement all undone. We also have the end of the curse. From this time there shall be no more curse. He who has made a curse for us has canceled earth's curse forever. No cursed thing in any shape shall again be seen, only that which is blessed and holy. The earth in its fullness shall then be the Lord's, in a way till now unknown. Blessed kingdom and blessed king, from every particle of dust, from air and earth and sea, shall the curse be expelled forever. O fair and spotless creation, great paradise of God, the wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It's also the end of corruption and mortality. These are the fruit of the curse, and with the curse they, sh they disappear. Death is no more, the grave is emptied, disease is abolished, the inhabitant shall no more say, I am sick. Feebleness and weariness are unknown. The head aches not, nor the heart. The eye grows not dim, nor the ear dull. All is immortality and incorruption, and beauty and eternal health. Lastly, it's the end of sorrow. Into this new creation no grief shall ever enter. The days of mourning shall be ended. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. God shall wipe away all tears. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. There shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For it is written, The, earth, the Lord shall be uh, thy everlasting light, and thy God thy glory. Thou shalt weep no more. Everlasting joy shall be upon our heads. The veil of tears shall then be the land of song. And with the end of these things shall come the beginning of the glorious and the blessed. The old passes away, and the new comes up like the sun in its strength. Winter is over and gone. It is sweet spring and perpetual summer now. It is the kingdom that cannot be moved, the undefiled inheritance, the reign of righteousness, the reign of the righteous king. Into this nothing that defileth shall enter, nothing unworthy of the presence of the glorious king. All this for those who once were sinners, the lost and worthless. 
blood has brought it. The cross has done it all. Through death, life has come. The crucified Christ has opened the gate for us, and all may go in. The same Jesus who has brought the glory for us bids us come. Far and wide go out the messages of invitation. Come in, come in. At each gate waves the blessed hand afar, beckoning us with all urgency to enter. Echoing amid earth's vales and hills, through every land, the trumpet sounds that summons the wanderer and assures, most, and assures him of most loving welcome. Will you hesitate, O men, or neglect or scoff or refuse? All this glory waiting you, these open gates inviting you, and this poor, dark, death-stricken earth speaking to you each hour and saying, This is not your rest. I have nothing for you but sorrow and pain and despair. O men of earth, will you miss the prize thus placed within your reach? Will you despise the love that yearns and weeps over you in your folly? Will you not listen and live? Will you not listen and go in and become heirs of the glory and the joy? So he describes the place that uh, is there. The new, and we, we read about the new Jerusalem. Uh, we read about the river of life in chapter 22. Let's read this at the very beginning. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. This is about the vision of God. They will see his face. The vision of God. It is the new Jerusalem that John is describing, the city of glory, the home of light, the metropolis of the universe, the palace of Jehovah, where is the throne of God and of the Lamb. No sin there, no curse, no night, no death, no tears, no sorrow. There is the tree of life, the river of the water of life, the never-closed gates, the never-fading beauty, the never-setting sun. But of all the happiness and honor that fill that city of glory, this is the sum and the center and the overflow. They shall see his face. Let us ask, first of all, whose face? It is the face of God, and that face is Jesus, the Word made flesh, the brightness of his glory and express image of his person. For we know that the light of the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. On the transfiguration, his face did shine as the sun, Matthew seventeen two, And that face is at once the face of the Son of Man and the face of the Son of God, fairer than the children of men, the chief among ten thousand, and altogether lovely. It is the face of majesty, yet the face of love, the face of a king, nay, the face of the king of kings. Like unto it, there is not any face in earth or heaven in all the vast universe of God, so bright, so fair, so perfect, so glorious, so divine. Secondly, who shall see it? His servants. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Thine eyes shall see the King and his beauty. They of whom it is written, If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. It is they only who are admitted within the resplendent walls of that holy city that shall see his face. From all who are shut out, that face is forever hidden. They are called servants here, yet are they sons, kings, joint heirs with Christ. As he is a servant, so they are they, servants, yet sons and friends, 
and the name of servant is one of honor and dignity. Thirdly, what is it to see his face? This is explained by Psalm 41, verse 12. Thou settest me before thy face forever. And by Esther 1.14, the seven princes which saw the king's face, and which set but first in the kingdom. And by two kings, 25.19, five men of them which were in the king's presence, literally, which saw the king's face. In this, then, there is implied, first of all, nearness. These servants form the inner, nay, the innermost circle of creation. They stand nearest to God, always beholding the face of their Father in heaven. There is no nearness like this, even that of angels is distance when compared with it. Second of all, blessedness. The nearest of the disciples was the most blessed, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The nearest to him in heaven will be most blessed, for nearness is blessedness, and seeing him face to face is the perfection of joy. Thirdly, honor. To see the king's face was the great earthly honor, so is it the greatest heavenly honor. They who see it nearest and oftenest are the most honored. They are those whom the king delighteth to honor, his peerage, his princes, his sons, nay, his bride. Theirs is the place of honor. Fourthly, power. They who see the king's face are his counselors, his vice-regents, the doers of his will. They are invested with his authority and go forth to exercise his dominion. Power over the nations, Revelation 2.26, dominion over ten cities, Luke 19.17. This power belongs to the redeemed. Christ's throne is theirs, his crown, his scepter, his kingdom, all these universal, for he that overcometh shall inherit all things. This seeing of the face of God and his Christ will be first of all eternal. It cannot end. It is an everlasting vision and therefore an everlasting nearness, blessedness, honor, and power. No lapse of ages can cloud the vision or dim the eye that sees it. The vision and the joy are alike forever. It is also unchangeable, no interruption, no eclipse, no cloud, no darkness, no setting, no dimness of eye, no unbelief, no distance. The glory cannot change. No intervention for the world, no faintness on our part, no veil drawn by Satan, no old age or failing faculties, no distraction from other objects, no discomposure from cares or sorrows, no unsteadiness of sight. None for these can diminish the vision. It is as perpetual as it is perfect and divine. Learn from this hope such lessons as these. First of all, live a joyful life. May not a prospect such as this make a man joyful. Should not the very hope of it make his countenance to shine. Second of all, be strong for toil. Let this hope nerve us for labor and animate our zeal. Let it rouse us out of sloth and make us grudge nothing, either of labor or sacrifice. Toil on, fight on, spend and be spent. Thirdly, be comforted under trial. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. The vision of the face of God will more than make up for all. And may it be soon. He will not tarry. The Lord is at hand. The new Jerusalem is coming. The glory will soon be revealed. The time is short. A few years, perhaps less, we shall see his face and share his glory. That is what awaits for those who trust in Christ, who are looking to him, and they will see his face. Lastly, as we wrap up this whole thing, I want to uh, read the last verse of the book of Revelation, the last book of the last verse of the whole Bible. 
uh, it's, uh, it says this, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with all. Amen. And this is the last thing we're going to read. It's called The Free Love of Christ. It's from Horatius Bonar. Thus the Bible closes with blessing. In this prayer, we have the summing up of all the blessings which the Word of God has uttered. In the prospect of the Lord's coming and with his voice proclaiming, surely I come quickly, the apostle breathes out the prayer, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It was sent to the seven churches of Asia. It is sent to us in these last days. Nor do we need it less. It suited well the church in the beginning of her history. It suits her as well at its close. The love that passeth knowledge is contained in it, and in that love all that a sinner needs at first, as well as all that a saint needs to the last. Grace abounding, grace reigning, grace conquering, grace justifying, grace comforting, grace purifying. Such is the key to the history of the church of God. It is the history of Christ's free love and of salvation to the uttermost through that free love flowing down to earth. For everything pertaining to the sinner's deliverance and life eternal comes down to us from God. Man is simply the receiver and the enjoy and the enjoyer of a love as boundless as it is unbought. First of all, what is this grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's free love, divine favor, unbought, unsolicited, and undeserved. With this, the Bible begins, and with this it ends, the free love of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. This is the good news which the messengers of God have brought to us, the good news which the cross of Christ has made available and accessible, the good news which remained good to the last, unchanged and unweakened by the lapse of time. The gospel has not become a dried-up well or broken cistern. The free love of God coming to us through his Son has not been exhausted or made less free. In these last days, we can take up the old message of grace to the sinner and sound it abroad as loudly and as freshly as at the first. No delight in the death of the wicked, delight in his turning from his ways and living, yearning over the impenitent, tears for Jerusalem's sinners, stretching out the hand to the rebellious, invitation upon invitation to the weary, the open door, the universal call, the beseeching to be reckoned, to be to be reconciled, the pressing of the cup of life to the lips of a thirsty world. All this continued to the last marks the unutterable compassion of God to the sinner, the riches of the divine grace, the boundless fullness of God's heart as it pours out its longings and proclaims its long suffering to the chief of sinners. Return to your father's house and be blessed. Come and be forgiven. Look and be saved. Touch and be healed. Ask and it shall be given. Secondly, how it has been shown. In many ways, but chiefly in the cross. The words of Christ were grace, the doings of Christ were grace, but at the cross it came forth most fully. Grace all concentrates there. Grace shines out there in its fullness. The cross is the place and pledge of grace. The cross did not make or originate the grace, but it made it a righteous thing that grace should flow out to us. It threw wide the gates of the storehouse. It unsealed the heavenly well. From the cross comes forth the voice of love, the message of grace, the embassy of peace and reconciliation. This grace flows everywhere throughout a guilty earth, but its center is the cross, and only in connection with the cross is it available for and accessible to us. The it is finished of Golgotha was the throwing down of the barriers that stood between the sinner and the grace. 
The grace itself was uncreated and eternal. It did not originate in the purpose, but in the nature of God. Still, its outflow to sinners was hemmed in by righteousness, and until this was satisfied at the cross, the grace was like forbidden fruit to man. Divine displeasure against sin and divine love of holiness found their complete satisfaction at the altar, where the consuming fire devoured the great burnt offering and gave full vent to the pent-up stores of grace. The love of the Father giving his Son was there. The love of the Holy Ghost by whom a body was prepared for him and by whom he offered himself without spot was there. Here is the great exhibition of the grace. Thirdly, how we get it. Simply by taking it as it is and as we are. By letting it flow into us. By believing God's testimony concerning it. Grace supposes no preparation whatsoever in him who receives it, save that of worthlessness and guilt, whether these be felt or unfelt. The dryness of the ground is that which fits it for the rain. The poverty of the beggar is that which fits him for the alms. So the sin of the sinner is that which fits him for the grace of Christ. If anything else were needed, grace would be no more grace, but would become work or merit. Where sin abounds, there it is that grace much more abound. How many are shutting out the grace by trying to prepare themselves for it? Open thy mouth wide and I will fill it, is all that God asks. Our thirst may be but the thirst for happiness. Our hunger may be but the hunger of earth. Our feelings may be altogether unspiritual. Our sense of sin, nothing. Yet all this does not make us less qualified for Christ's free love, or that free love less immediate or less bounteous in its flow. In the belief of God's testimony to the grace of his son, we let in the grace and become partakers of the pardon and the joy. Fourthly, what it does for us. It does so many things that we find it not easy to reply to this question any more than to such. What does the light do for us? What does the air do for us? It does for us exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think. It pardons. Forgiveness through the grace and work of Christ is the beginning of the good news. He who believes God's record of the grace of Christ is forgiven. Secondly, it pacifies. It brings peace to the conscience. Not the grace without the blood, but still the grace that comes to us through the blood pacifies. Thirdly, it liberates. Dread of God's anger kept us in bondage. The knowledge of the grace of Christ reaching us through the finished propitiation of the cross sets us free by removing this dread. Fourthly, it enlightens. With the grace there pours in light from him who is the light of the world. The grace dispels the darkness. Fifthly, it strengthens. The sight of the free love brought to us by the blood invigorates the soul. Till we see it, our hands hang down and our knees fail us. Sixthly, it purifies. It is holy grace, holy love, and it carries its purifying power into the soul that receives it. The cross is the awful revelation of divine holiness, and the love that comes to us through the cross is purifying love. Seventhly, it comforts. Only such free love can sustain the soul in sorrow, or speak consolation, or bind up the wounds of the brokenhearted. Fifthly and lastly, how long it lasts? Forever. It has not end. Christ loveth forever. His grace is unchangeable like himself. Its fullness is inexhaustible. 
It will be a perpetual fountain throughout eternity. It does for the evil days here and for the glorious days hereafter. It suits us on earth. It will suit us in the kingdom. There is grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in the ages to come, God will show us the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that's it. Uh, What a great way to end, I think, by remembering again what the whole Bible is about. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. And that's what I think um, that should be at the heart of my life, your life. It's the goal I know of our pastoral staff and of, of those that here at MNBC. That's what we want, isn't it, as a church family. We want this, this, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to be at the heart beat, the center that has no circumference, by the way. Remember what he said earlier, the cross is the center, but it has no circumference. It has no boundaries. And that's what we want um, to be the beating heart of our church family. Because fads come and go. Times may change, but the sinful condition in which you and I find ourselves in does not change. Our hearts are the same hearts they had 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, and 20 years ago. The human condition has not changed. Our sin is the same. The sins that you and I struggle with are the same sins that the Apostle Paul struggled with, the same sins that Peter and David and Sarah and Rachel and Rebecca and Mary and everybody else has struggled with because we have the same hard, evil heart. But also... The grace, the cross, the love, the offer, the, I love the image. He says, God is putting the, the cup. How does he phrase it? Let me see that real quick. He, he said he is, um, oh yes, he is pressing the cup of life to the lips of a thirsty world. That is how much God loves us. He's taken the cup of life, his son, his cross, everything, and taking it and putting it to the lips of every person who hears that gospel message, saying, take it, receive me. And that is what I need every single day because I can't go 24 seconds without sinning because my heart is still hard. Your heart is still has remnants of that old Adam. But the blood of Christ saves us, cleanses us, comforts us, changes us, so that we can now be made gradually, maybe sometimes imperceptibly, into the image of his beloved son. And that same message that saves us, we don't have to, and this is another thing, The same basic message that we want to preach to the world is the same message we need in the church, the gospel. Now, we may address it to different situations, but the message is the same. And so, uh, this grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
May it be with all of us. And may it be with you as you read the scriptures, but also as you live your life, as you go through this Christmas time. Uh, Think about the love of Christ. Think about the urgency of the gospel because he could return at any time. And uh, we do want unbelievers to come to know him. We want our children to come to know him. We want to press these promises closely to our hearts because we still doubt some of us, don't we? Uh, maybe you have doubts about, am I really saved? Am I really sorry for my sins? Have I really done? And I love what he said. Listen, there's no preparation here. No preparation, whether you feel your sins or whether you don't. Take Jesus. Take him. He's for sinners. And uh, that's that's what we do. That's the message we've been given. Um, and it, it, it's the message that we need It's the message we all need. And uh, he's the Savior, and he will do his work. He is sufficient and able to do what he's promised. All right. Well, that's all we've got for this year. Um, Next week, I'm assuming then, we will be back into the Bible, but in the Old Testament. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be interesting. We'll see what happens. Um, and, uh, maybe we'll, we'll see what we're going to learn as we now tie together the whole Bible as one message. Now we've seen the new Testament portion, but let's see now where Christ, what Christ was doing in the old Testament before his first coming. It's going to be exciting stuff. Well, Merry Christmas, have a happy new year, take care and God bless.